Today's guest is Zeynep Tufekci. She is a contributing opinion writer at the New York Times, and she is an associate professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill with an affiliate appointment in the Department of Sociology. She is also a faculty associate at the Harvard Berkman Center for Internet and Society and was previously a fellow at the Center for Information Technology Policy at Princeton University. And her research interests revolve around the intersection of technology and society. Her academic work focuses on social movements, privacy and surveillance, and social interaction. She's also increasingly known for her work on big data and algorithmic decision-making. And she's originally from Turkey and formerly a computer programmer, but has taken that background in interesting and, and increasingly relevant directions. And she's the author of Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Network Protest. And we get into many interesting topics here relevant to information security and things like WikiLeaks and ransomware attacks, the fake news phenomenon, all increasingly relevant as we depend more and more on the Internet and draw our beliefs about reality from what happens there. So without further preamble, I bring you Zeynep Tufekci. I am here with Zeynep. T Jesus, Zeynep. <laughs> I know. It's looked, I swear to you that no bungling is a fail because there is no baseline. So go for it. The, the mind was willing, but the tongue failed. <laughs> I don't blame you. It, it really is. It's, it's, it's an isolate language. It has no relatives either. We're freak of nature language. So. All right. Well, <laughs> I am here with Zeynep Tufekci. Zeynep, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So we met at Banff at the uh, the TED Summit, where we actually we were in the same session. We both gave talks on AI. I gave a talk on sort of the the further future and possible very scary outcome, and uh, you gave a talk on the present, the way in which AI is becoming increasingly a topic of concern. We're not talking hypothetical human intelligence AI. We're talking specialized AI that can do many good things, but also many undesirable things if we're not careful. Well, I'm sure we'll touch on that. But before we do, just, just introduce yourself to people, because you have a kind of an interesting backstory. You didn't get into this by the most conventional path. How did you come to be an expert on the sorts of things we're going to talk about in cybersecurity and social persuasion and organizing movements through social media? Who are you, Zeynep? That's a very existential question to begin with. <laughs> who am I? Uh, well, I'm not sure who I am, but I can describe the path that took me here. Um, as you say, it is a little unconventional, partly because I'm the product of a historical transition, right? I'm still of the generation that grew up without the internet, especially since I grew up in the Middle East. And I grew up in Turkey, uh, which at the time uh, was ruled in the aftermath of a military coup, which had uh, brought about very heavy censorship. So I grew up watching a single TV channel, which made me acutely aware of censorship, especially since that TV channel didn't show us anything that seemed to be in the news or relevant to the country. Instead, we would watch a Little House on the Prairie because that's what they showed. And it made no sense in Turkey, but didn't matter. Um, and I started out 
as uh, a kid really interested in math and science and physics and all the things that um, kind of geeky kids are interested in. And I really enjoyed learning about it. But early on in my life, I got terribly concerned about the ethical implications of technology, especially since what happens to many kids like me happened to me too. Uh, I call it the atom bomb problem for kids into science. At some point, your excitement hits this wall because you learn about the atom bomb and that it was enabled by great physics. It, the, the very physics that you admire and think is amazing is also what enabled this. And so you go into this tailspin. And to my, um, I guess, kind of failure of imagination, I thought computers would be a great topic for me because they would have fewer ethical implications. Um, and I also needed to get into a job quickly because not only did I grow up in Turkey, I grew up in a pretty dysfunctional, broken home. I needed to start working as soon as I could. I uh, started working literally as a 13-year-old and then as a programmer as early as a teenager, 16, 17. So I had this sort of very unusual path that I found myself in a technical job in a country still under pretty significant censorship um, and closed public sphere without the internet. And I found myself, because of my technical job, I found myself sort of glimpsing the future, kind of this parallel existence where uh, I'd work at IBM, which had this amazing intranet that allowed me to talk with people around the world almost as an equal, right? You know, I'm a I mean, here, there, I am a teen girl, kind of with all that goes into it in a country like that, pretty much anywhere in the world too. But I'm on the intranets kind of as a person and taken seriously. It was just, you know, the early promise of the internet people kind of laugh at right now. It had a reality to it. So I, I sort of just got enchanted by this possibility. And I was also fairly interested in how do we bring about change? How do we bring more freedom? How do we bring more um, compassion and reason to the world? And I thought, this is great. This is going to change everything. And I really wanted to study it. And I switched to sociology kind of along the way, but not knowing what exactly would make sense, right? I, I was just trying to find my way. And because such things often happen in the United States, I found a way I kind of stumbled into graduate school in the United States, trying to understand all this better. And in the meantime, as I was struggling with trying to understand and think through, the world was progressing. You know, we started having, you know, more and more digital connectivity. And sometime, I think around 2004, I stopped having to explain why computer science, computer programming, and sociology and social science were related, because Facebook happened. And it was, I think, the first time that a lot of people uh, who are not specialists kind of had this very visceral reaction to how their social world is being changed by this new platform. Uh, questions of privacy and other things became very prominent in people's mind. And then fast forward a little bit, Arab Spring happened, which is exactly what I study, social change and social movements. So I started studying that. And then the Gezi Park protests happened, which again happened three blocks from my uh, place of birth, uh, that close home to home. So I went there and um, 
And now I'm, you know, sort of trying to focus on the future and understand how the methods in both artificial intelligence like machine learning and the Silicon Valley business models and the world we are in, politically speaking, what does this intersection mean? You know, how do we understand the rise of authoritarianism? How do we think about technology's role in all of this? And the security part that you mentioned, I got into it partly because I work with so many people in social movements and journalists that they're kind of like the canary in the mind with the insecurity in the internet affects them earlier on because they're targeted. So I got into that part too. I guess I'm a mutt in you know all of these particular fields. It's that intersection. And it turns out it's a relevant intersection. And so here I am I, uh, to the degree one can answer this question of what I'm studying right now and what I'm thinking about right now. Well, it's all too relevant and only becoming more so. And as you say, our, the first blush of enthusiasm for the internet connecting us all as an unambiguous good, that has faded. And now we're discovering that as this technology connects people and empowers us, it's also fragmenting us in ways that are fairly difficult to correct for. And it's creating new levers of influence that could lead to more authoritarian control and, and perverse forms of persuasion. And uh, you told me in the setup to this that you were worried about something you've called surveillance capitalism. How do you think about that? What, what is surveillance capitalism? So here's what I think about this. We have this um, scary convergence of a couple of events. Uh, one of them is the business model on the internet for the sort of platforms that most of us use, like the Facebooks and Twitters of the world. Um, it's capturing our attention and persuading us to, at the moment, click on ads. So there's an enormous amount of brain power going into how to make us buy 0.003 more shoes per person on average. Um, you have this whole infrastructure that is collecting our data, that is doing you know hundreds of thousands of dynamic tests on the platform just to persuade us to act in a particular way uh, for commercial reasons, right? to make us purchase things. And this is happening in uh, increasingly through technologies um, that are like machine learning, which is a form of uh, computer programming that is different than the past in that we don't program it anymore. We feed the machines a lot of data and they create these large matrices and calculate certain things. And just like the brain, that we can't really see what a person is thinking if we slice their brain. With machine learning, you don't really see exactly what's going on. It just spews out classifications. It says, do this, do that, do this, do that. It's probabilistic, but it works pretty strikingly uh, well for the things that we're using it for. But it needs data to work, which means um, that we have a business model that is set both to figure out how to exactly push our buttons and also to um, use an enormous amount of data that is surveilled from us symmetrically. You don't get to see what they have. And this enormous amount of data uh, can also be used to deduce things about us that we haven't disclosed, right? It's not just invading our privacy directly. When you have that much data, you can use computational inference to figure out 
who you think is a troublemaker, who's depressed, uh, who might be on a manic swing in a you know manic depressive cycle. You can figure all these things out even if people don't disclose them or even know them, right? Um, so this is kind of where things are at, this convergence. And the thing I fear is that this is a perfect setup for authoritarians because it allows them to survey the population and to nudge them and shape the opinions using this amount of information that's asymmetric that can figure things out and using machine learning at scale. That means you're like individually experimented on, figured out how to exactly scare you, how to fear monger, how to, uh, when you're vulnerable uh, and what you're vulnerable for. And then this will come into politics as well. And there's nothing wrong with persuasion as a form of politics, but it's not happening openly, right? It's happening person by person. It's happening in the dark. Uh, you don't see what other people are seeing. You don't see what is being uh, targeted at you. And think of China, right, with uh, hundreds of millions of people online. And it's not like they censor everything. They censor a few things, but we know from research they usually don't censor government criticism. I feel like it might have even made them more stable because an authoritarian's blind spot is not knowing what people are up to. And this is perfect for knowing exactly what people are up to and individually pushing their buttons. So I find this really ironic that the Silicon Valley business model and the Silicon Valley work, workforce, which is uniquely um, liberal or progressive or libertarian in general, pro-science, empirically oriented, you know, they're geeky in many ways. And I say it as a positive, I find that's my tribe too. We may well be building the infrastructure of authoritarianism. And I think they're under this impression that they'll never lose control of these tools, that they built them and they won't let them be used for evil, so to speak. And I look at history and that's never how it works. Um, you build the infrastructure, it gets taken over by the people with money, with power, with uh, authority. So that's kind of what I've started really worrying about. Uh, my first book was about social moon, social change and digital tech and the complexities there. I'm now thinking, let's look at this from the point of view of power, the powerful, not the challengers. You know, we spent a lot of time thinking about digital media and digital technology and challengers really need to start thinking about digital technology and the powerful and how they're converging historically. Let's take parts of this problem. That's all fascinating. And, and I've been thinking a lot about the way in which digital media is co-opting our attention and causing us to spend our lives in ways that we will later regret. And, and actually, I had another guest on the podcast, Tristan Harris, who spoke a lot about that. He's great on that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I, I haven't really thought as much about the authoritarian misuse of this. I mean, obviously, the, the, there's a lot in the news and a lot of talk about fake news and the, the Russian meddling in our election, and, and we should probably get to that. So there, there's been obvious political issues here, but what's your view on social media in particular? I mean, I notice you use Twitter with a fair degree of enthusiasm. I see you have 74,000 tweets. I do. Uh, it's I saw some my research area, so it's kind of um, it's a special thing that I'm usually watching things on Twitter too. So I have this dual thing. Uh, I may 
be keeping an eye on part of my research project. I think I would use it less if it weren't part of my research. In fact, I don't do Facebook research as much, and I'm on Facebook a lot less, uh, partly because, as Tristan points out, it's a medium designed to capture your attention, right? And it's a medium, like every incentive there is to try to capture your attention. And there are times when I'm fine with that, but how do you keep autonomy and agency in an architecture that's designed to get you to do something that maybe you don't want to do if you ask me in the morning, right? I might be wanting to do it then, but if you ask me in the morning, is this how much of my day I want to spend? So I try to sort of judge that. And outside of my own research and my job researching this stuff, I try to be sort of more mindful of when am I not going to be on this? And when am I going, how am I going to relate to these technologies that I know are designed to grab me? Uh, one of the things I've started trying to do is not use services if there's an alternative that um, I don't pay for. I feel like I want to be the consumer. I want to be the one they're catering to rather than being the person whose attention they want to grab so they can sell to people trying to manipulate me into buying 0.003 more shoes. Um, so that's kind of, it, it, it's part, and the problem is, of course, it's part of life. I, I work with uh, refugees uh, and I do, you know, I try to sort of, the unluckiest people, right? I try to sort of see if I can be of some help. And I couldn't do that work if I weren't on Facebook because that's where the groups are and that's where the organization goes on a lot of times. So, I, you know, to be in the civic world today, you use these platforms because that's where billions of people are. On the other hand, they're not designed with the kind of goals I have in mind when I'm engaging the world. And it's this huge challenge. It's this huge tension. And it feeds into what I just said, which is that the people in power are increasingly looking at this world and saying, what can we do with this? How can we use it to consolidate power? Do you have any thoughts about what recently happened in the election and, and the role that social media played there? And then the larger fake news phenomenon and just this issue about with respect to how we are getting siloed in echo chambers. Absolutely. Where there's a, it's like it's an illusion of being open to information, but in fact, people are just ramifying their worldview by use of these tools. Yeah. So let me just say a couple of things. With a lot of these tools, uh, if you talk to the companies, the first thing they will tell you is, that's what people are doing. You know, that's not us. Now, on the one hand, um, it's certainly true that um, this is driven by people, right? This is like you would not, it would not be fair to say that, you know, the social media platforms are generating this from whole cloth. They're not. It's more like we have certain human tendencies. We have, you know, if we see something that we agree with, it's more pleasant. Uh, if we see something we're angry, uh, it's kind of captures our attention. And you see this in the research on perception, right? When you look at a crowd, you're a lot more likely to notice the the angry face. Like, because, I mean, if in an in-person thing, if you think about the evolutionary process, the Pleistocene, if you live in a small group, it kind of probably made sense to know exactly who was mad at you, because uh, that could be a threat. So there are all these things that we already have 
tendencies for. I, I liken it to having an appetite for sugar and salt, right? It's a perfectly reasonable thing, given our evolutionary history, to be into sugar and salt. The problem is very rapidly, without any time to adjust, forget evolutionarily, culturally, uh, we have shifted to um, a world where we're supplied with, not only we're not just supplied with extra sugar and salt, social media platforms use sugar and salt to keep you there, kind of like a salt lake used to shoot animals. Uh, but instead of shooting us, they're um, just capturing our attention. They're selling us shoes. And that's, I think, big part of what's going on with the election too. What happened is we got siloed, of course. And um, and I, I for my, because I'm, because of my work and because of my sensitivities to authoritarians, I guess I started following social media, Trump social media very early on because I thought, whoa, this is an interesting thing. And I argued he was viable when everybody was laughing at him exactly because I was following his base on social media. And a couple of things happened. I saw how and why he resonated. I also saw an enormous amount of misinformation that ranged from distortions to fake news. Um, sort of proliferate there. I also saw that once when I wasn't making a conscious effort to follow these people, which I did as a part of work, I did it every day uh, for, you know, almost two years now. Like if I went on Facebook, I had friends who were Trump supporters, uh, although they were in the minority because, you know, I'm a college professor in a blue part of a purple state. And it kind of makes sense for most of my friends not to be Trump supporters, but I have friends from middle school and elsewhere, and some of them, turns out, were sympathetic to Trump. I never saw their posts, right? I just sort of thought about it, you know, halfway through, and I'm like, whoa, do I not have a single person I friended on Facebook? Because I friend lots of people, and Facebook is not very personal for me. And I had to hunt them. I guessed them, and I hunted their posts down. And yeah, there were people who had sympathy and Facebook's algorithm never showed it to me. And I'm guessing it's not, I mean, obviously it's not a conscious decision. Once again, these machine learning algorithms, they know that if you give people sugar and salt, which I, I just, in, in case of Facebook, for me, it's um, cuddly stuff or outrageous stuff, right? Babies, cats, cute things, happy news, also things we're angry about, outrageous. So Babies eating cats. I think those both polar sides attract attention. So they just feed us that. And I think that's really destructive, especially given it's a way to make money for people. So you could just be a spammer and figure out, hey, look, I can just feed people fake news about Hillary Clinton. That's what a lot of people did. I interviewed a bunch of these people. Some of them were even liberals. They were just like, it works, it spreads, and we make money from Facebook. So not only does it allow, the, not only does the algorithm kind of amplify this, it allows you to make a lot of money from doing exactly this. And I'm not saying mass media was ever perfect. Many failures there, but this is a new onward uh, world to have no checks on no ethos against this kind of misinformation. So about four or five years ago, hmm, five years ago now, uh, I wrote this article for the New York Times worried about the Obama campaign's use of data. 
right? Because they were already sort of developing all these methods to target people and to try to persuade people using statistical data they had on them. And I said, look, you know, I understand campaigns want to win, but this kind of, you know, asymmetric accumulation of data uh, where it goes far beyond just, you know, which magazine you're subscribed to. And um, the kind of smart targeting has the potential to gerrymander us down to the person and have politics only be about people who are persuadable and all these sort of downside effects of having the public sphere become more and more private and more and more asymmetric uh, in how it operates. And I got a lot of pushback from people in the Obama campaign and people in the data science world. And one of the things I was uh, told was, one, I was told this will always be on the side of people we like, um, people told me. Uh, they said, you know, this is something that, you know, people who like science, people who like data, people who are empirical, um, this is only going to be their tool because the other side, they told me, doesn't like data, they can't do this. The second thing I was told was, um, this is just a form of persuasion, no different than any other. Now, fast forward just four years after that, and what I saw was um, in the 2016 election, the Ted Cruz's data people ended up being Donald Trump's data people. And I'm going to recount something they claimed they did. Now, I don't have access to the internal data, so I can't vouch they did this, but I have some independent evidence that they at least tried. But just outlining is enough to explain what the issue is. Uh, so they claim that they used People's Facebook likes uh, and other kind of indicators, social media data uh, or whatever it is they use, because this is just social media data is very good for this, to try to figure out people's psychological profile. Now, we know from research that if I just have, um, say, what you liked on Facebook or even just your tweet stream, uh, we can guess using these sort of complex algorithms, we can guess with pretty high probability. Um, where you fit on the big five personality traits like neuroticism, extroversion, etc. We can guess your sexual orientation. We can guess whether you're religious and what religion. We can guess a lot of things, even if you never disclose them, right? These are not things that you needed to have put on your profile. So we can figure this out. And we know also from research that some people will vote more authoritarian if they're scared. Other people get pissed off at fear-mongering. And the problem with advertising on TV is, you know, you're advertising to everyone at the same time, right? Uh, but what if you could go on Facebook and target only the people that would be prone to a particular kind of message, say fear-mongering? Now, again, it's because Facebook won't tell us, we don't know the exact story here, but Donald Trump's campaign claims they try to demobilize particular segments of the population against voting. So it's important. This isn't persuasion. They weren't trying to persuade them to vote for him. They were just trying to tell them Hillary Clinton's just as bad, stay home. Uh, for example, one of the targeted constituencies was black men in Philadelphia. And Philadelphia was, you know, just very little difference uh, in Pennsylvania, which was a major um, electoral gain for Trump, right? 
They, and I have independent confirmation they did target black men in Philadelphia. We've come across instances. So what they tried to do was to demobilize those people. What did they tell them? We don't know, right? Only Facebook knows. Would, did they tell them things that were correct, things that were false, things that were completely made up of whole cloth? Were they just scary commercials? Who knows? They were just targeted at them. And um, so the census data from the election just came in. And it's pretty clear that the biggest difference between 2012 and 2016 is um, the black turnout in the country was depressed in lots of places. Now, clearly, there are multiple possible explanations for this. It could be um, the Obama effect has worn off, right? It's kind of reasonable to expect the first African-American president would gather a bigger share and enthusiasm from the African-American population. It could be that part of it is these strict voter suppression-oriented laws that cut the amount of uh, hours, that cut the number of voting machines in minority districts. It could be the gerrymandering. It could be the voter ID laws that are especially problematic with elderly Black people who don't necessarily have the birth certificates and et cetera. But it could also be this. We could also have a world in which large segments of the population were psychologically profiled and otherwise profiled and silently targeted through Facebook dark ads in a way that would push their buttons and do it one by one. Like if you needed people to figure out what everybody needed, you'd never manage it because to target 100,000 people, you'd need 10,000 people. Whereas right now, we're um, at a world where machine learning is designing machine learning experiments to experiment on us. It's already out of our control, right? And you can do this at scale. You can figure out people one by one using these technologies. So what if that is part of what swung a very close election? Clearly it's multi-causal, so anything could have swung it, but what if this is part of what made the difference? Now, this is a small example. And the question, I mean, the objection I hear to this is they probably didn't manage this. My answer is, well, we don't know. And if they didn't manage it, this is where things are going. You see what I'm saying? This is what my concern with surveillance capitalism meets uh, authoritarianism is, that the business model of capturing your attention, profiling you, and trying to persuade you to buy that extra shoe is very compatible with a manipulative public sphere where you don't get to see what is even contested because it's so segmented person by person. And then buttons are pushed person by person. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah, it's all very interesting. I think people, most people at first glance, will understand what's wrong with targeting people, however individually, with fake information, with lies, with fake news stories, and persuading them that way. That's clearly a problem, and we have to figure out some way to correct for it. But as you said earlier, persuasion is just persuasion. There's nothing wrong in principle with persuasion. And so it's not. It may not be clear to people why there is a special concern around the segmentation of the population with these tools when you are validly persuading them. Well, even if you're validly persuading people, right, even if you're just sort of, um, I mean, in some ways, obviously, this is just more of what just political campaigners and marketers and everybody have always tried to do, right, in many ways. 
there is no difference from um, what they try to do. The big difference is it's doable now, right? This is what past marketers, you can go back and you can look at, you know, sort of how political campaigns have always tried to do this. I'm just reading this uh, Rick Perlstein's biography of Goldwater, and he's got a campaign manager that's saying the indifference, we got to target the indifference. And he has to figure out who they are uh, and um, what's, um, you know, how to target these people. They had baseball bats. They could advertise on TV. They could um, just try to send a message out. And it was really difficult to send the message out to one person and not the other and to push one person's buttons without upsetting the other. And also, because it was public, if you put out an ad like that on TV, it was plausible that the other side would uh, mobilize and say, this isn't true. Here's how to do this, right? It's all possible that you know we could have um, this contestation. And if you go back to the idea of the public sphere, right, it was never as you know nice and as um, clean as the Habermasian version of it, where people are just having reasoned discussions regardless of who they are and their status. But um, it was really sort of, at least in, in ideal, we would have this world. Right now, it's gone exactly in the opposite direction. Instead of sort of wishing to persuade us like that and only having baseball bats to act with, they have scalpels that they can use to get at us one by one, right? So instead of baseball bats that would both provoke a reaction and weren't as effective, they have quite scalpels that they can do this with without provoking the reaction, without being public, and without sort of having us be able to oppose it. And uh, so that's kind of my worry is that, yes, we have antecedents of this as we have everything, but it's now effective and it's also asymmetric. I don't ever see what data they have on me. I don't ever see what they're um, trying to do push my buttons, right? I don't have any meta idea of, uh, like, I don't have perspective and I don't have defenses against it because if it was, you know, if I had defenses against it, it, let me liken it this way. When movies first came out, people ran away when uh, they saw a train coming at them on the screen, right? Now, right now, if you see a movie, you know, and there's a train or a car coming at you, you don't even flinch, right? You know, it's a movie screen and nothing's coming at you. For the ordinary person, it was perfectly understandable to be scared of this new phenomenon and not understand how to deal with, because it wasn't, you know, it was just so novel. And uh, if you look at the early history of movie making, you see that it was greatly intertwined with extreme, violent, racist, fascist ideologies. If you look at people like, say, Lena Riefenstahl, this um, German filmmaker, actress, who was great behind the camera. She invented a lot of the shots. If you watch ESPN, she's probably invented health their shots uh, covering first the Munich Olympics for Hitler. But that craft got adopted into authoritarianism because it was very impressive and very effective in persuading the masses in ways that isn't as apparent to us now because we kind of got used to the format and we have a lot more cynicism and defenses against the format. So that's where I think we are with these sort of dark 
technologies asymmetrically aimed at persuasion and manipulation is that we don't really understand their power. We don't get to see it. It's all private data. Like, so we don't get to see Facebook knows what happened last election, not telling anyone, not letting any independent researchers um, kind of add it. And, um, and we don't have a way to defend ourselves against it. And people will say, you know, I'm not manipulated. I'm not manipulated. And everybody thinks that. But, you know, we're all people. We're all persuadable in particular ways. And if there's a science and a craft of doing it with massive surveillance of us and testing of us and finding the exact way, we're all going to be vulnerable. And I think that's where um, where we are is that, the, um, in fact, if you look at it, Facebook's business model is telling advertisers and political campaigns that it's a great platform for persuading people. And it's telling us it's a lousy platform. It won't change any minds. It's just us. And like both of those things can happen at the same time. Uh, and I think it works to a degree. And I think we need to sort of really uh, think about how do we deal with this new threat to free conversation that is not so asymmetrically controlled. Well, listen, with 74,000 tweets, Zainab, I would say the AIs have already gotten to you. <laughs> you might have a problem. <laughs> I'll just point them at you. <laughs> when they come for me, I'll say it was Sam, it was Sam. I think I only have 6,000. Um, well, yeah, so the thing is they, they probably have my number in terms of what kind of a person I am, a lot of things. Although, on the other hand, um, I study these things a lot, so I'm always watching like every time I'm advertised, every time there's a dynamic change, every time something happens, I'm constantly trying to probe and get at it. And despite that, I wouldn't trust myself to be immune to it uh, at all. And that's the reason. I mean, th there's a strong reason to construct, for example, I think places for children that are free of advertisements directed at them. Um, I think children don't have yet, like especially younger children, don't have the a uh, way to assess the credibility and it's something that part of you know parenting is to teach them how to assess manipulative messages directed at them so it starts from protecting them to educating them and hopefully by the time they're out in the world on their own they realize uh manipulative messaging and i feel like it's the same thing except this is on steroids this is much more effective much more data-based much more empirically strong and machine learning based ways of um, manipulating us that we don't yet have means to defend ourselves properly because we're, we don't even have a full picture of what's going on. The degree to which our economy depends on advertising, in particular the digital economy, it's really, it's stunning. And, and most people are fairly oblivious to the downside, apart from not liking some annoying ads, but they don't see how the incentives get aligned perversely. And, absolutely, and... absolutely. I mean, advertising, um, if it was done kind of very low-key and informationally, you know, it doesn't sound bad per se, but let me put it this way. It's very easy using people's social media profiles, just their posts, public stuff. Uh, you don't even have to like read their secret messages or something. It's fairly easy for a computational inference system to predict the upswing of a manic swing in a bipolar person, 
right? Um, in, in fact, using the data, you can see it coming before it's clinically manifest. And you can probably see it even if the person hasn't said a word about it to anyone, even if they feel it. And we know uh, that people on the upswing like that, they're prone to spending money and travel and they become more reckless and more compulsive. I mean, can you imagine? And I'm not even sort of, it's perfectly reasonable to assume that a machine learning algorithm, which is a black box, so you don't even know it's doing this, could target such a person with discounted ads to Vegas, right? You know, here's a discount the um, plane ticket to Vegas. Could even comp the ticket to Vegas from a hotel, knowing that this person is particularly at a vulnerable moment for overspending on gambling, right? Uh, or I, I saw an advertising agency openly talk about, like Advertising Mag openly talk about how they wanted to target women for buying makeup when women felt fat, lonely, or depressed, quote unquote. Well, you know, now you don't even have to guess because you can use social media profiles to figure out exactly when people feel like that. In fact, there is um, uh, there is now increasingly evidence that there's a scandal brewing in Australia that Facebook executives may have told advertisers that they can figure out when teens are vulnerable. Uh, I the, the, the sort of the scandal part is still unfolding, and I don't know if they did or not. But they certainly can tell that, right? So the point isn't for me to claim they did this, but the point is the power to do it is right in their fingertips. They can easily tell this. And so do we let them advertise to people who are in a particularly vulnerable state for things that feed that vulnerability and do it one by one? So you don't even know that there's a massive campaign to find everyone who might be just in a life stage and a psychological state that is making them more vulnerable to being reckless and just fly them to Vegas right then and there. And then just kind of say, oh, okay, we made money. What is the problem? I, I find that pernicious. I would like us to, and that's the advertising model though. And that's the power of it coupled with the kind of data and machine learning algorithms we have. So the next question becomes, it's bad enough when it is trying to bankrupt you it's also pretty horrific when it's trying to shape the political discourse so that people are constantly scared and, oh, you know, hyped and whatever it is that you think um, is your vulnerability is what you're targeted with. And I, I, I find that pretty unacceptable, but that's where things are going pretty fast. How healthy is the press in your view these days? Because <laughs> I know you have a lot to say about how they cover <laughs> terrorism. Yeah. We're speaking the day after the Manchester attack. So I've seen you on Twitter talking about how unhelpful it is really at every conceivable level to just get into this morbid cycle of recycling these videos of people's terror in the aftermath. I guess you could speak about that, but also just how the press is doing in general on these issues and I guess the problem of propaganda. Well, I mean, the problem for the press is I mean, it was never this perfect thing, right? So I don't have a nostalgia for a beautiful, wonderful press uh, and, you know, just watch sort of Watergate movies or something like that. So realistically, press always had some failings. But on the other hand, what happened to them recently is they're stuck on this page view model, right? 
Which is born of the advertising model. They are stuck on the same things that everybody else is chasing, which is clicks. And again, if you think of the sugar and salt analogy we had, something like yesterday's attack, I mean, obviously it's horrible. And any act of terror is horrifying. It's just viscerally horrifying. But viscerally horrifying and let's just sort of look at it nonstop are not necessarily good for trying to deal with such things um, because, I mean, it might well bring the page views that press once. And also with cable news, they now have like 24 hours to fill and not enough things to say in 24 hours because what are you going to say? You know, ISIS is horrible. They're a bunch of mass murderers. And then loop to people in panic, crying parents, and just loop this uh, endlessly because they don't have, there's not that much more to say often. So when you sort of get into this page view chasing model, it pushes you to these extremes where you're trying to do what um, Facebook's algorithm does, which is keep you on site, however, and the press is doing that. And I think it feeds a lot of unhealthy cycles. We saw this before the election. Um, obviously, this is a different context, but we saw this before the election that a politician apparently has to say something outrageous to get media coverage, right? Uh, so Donald Trump used that very well. In fact, he drowned out attention to from the other Republican candidates, and that was a big part of uh, how things worked out for him. Uh, so whatever it is, I think that's sort of the problems with the press is that it's also fed into this chase the page recycle. Let me give you a YouTube example to explain why I think this chase, the engagement is a problem. Uh, if you go on YouTube and watch, um, especially if you sort of start on an incognito window so that your YouTube history isn't there, but it doesn't matter. You'll still kind of get similar results, except it'll just pollute your history too. And go watch some new stuff on um, something you haven't watched before. Like I, I did an example with vegetarianism. Let's watch a few videos about the virtues or the arguments for vegetarianism. YouTube immediately nudges you and say, what about this video about veganism? You know, and if you watch that, you'll find yourself, watch, you know, being suggested this thing about, you know, some discussion about honey. This is okay. It's produced by bees, right? These are sort of more marginal considerations within that world. And you just constantly, this is an autoplay, it just keeps playing again and again. And you go down this rabbit hole where it's pushing you to the edge of an idea. Now, try, say, watching Donald Trump rallies, which I ended up doing for work because I was following Donald Trump's social media and I was attending his rallies and I wanted to make sure I got some quotes right. I started getting suggested white supremacist stuff on YouTube. If you watch a more centrist Democrat, um, you start getting suggested the conspiracy left, right? Uh, really sort of unrealistic and out there stuff. So what's happening once again, isn't that a bunch of people program this? Uh, what's happened is um, they have an algorithm that's figured out that if you go down the rabbit hole, it's engaging, right? If you can get people, quote unquote, to sort of say, oh, my eyes are open. Now I am more hardcore than you. That kind of sort of I'm more hardcore than you mechanism is a very deep human mechanism. It goes back to group formation and in-group, out-group processes and all of that. And these algorithms have figured out that it's great 
to feed you that. So wherever you are, it's going to push you to the outer edge rather than to the center, because if you're at the center, you will maybe reach a conclusion. It may even be a sensible conclusion, uh, or you may stay where you are, then you're satisfied, right? And if you're satisfied, you're not on the site anymore. It has to keep poking you to get you to stay on the site. And I liken this to holding meetings in a place designed to keep meetings going forever. That's terrible. You know, if a person's in a meeting, what is it you want? You want it to end. Yeah. Whereas um, these places are designed to make sure that your meetings never end. And that's where we're holding our public sphere in places that are designed to keep us engaged by making us go down the rabbit hole. And I think in the case of YouTube kind of algorithms or even Facebook, which does a version of this, what you end up getting is wherever you started, you will get suggested more and more of the edge. And especially if you're already kind of vulnerable to this and you go down and it's engaging and you see more of this, I think you just get more um, sucked in. And this doesn't happen to everyone, but clearly it happens to some number of people. And um, and I think that's really not good for the world. We see the sort of, if you look at the stories of uh, people who turn into sort of these sensational mass murderers where they go and just try to do something that's driving high publicity. And you see this across the political spectrum. You see this in sort of the religious inspired ones. You see this in the white supremacists. You see it even in school shootings, which are sort of done by younger people. But you often see a trail of, uh, you'd see a trail of sort of online self-radicalization. And I think it is not just people sort of seeking it out. It's also being suggested stuff through these recommender algorithms that sucks in a particular uh, mindset that's already, you know, got problems to begin with. So we're just feeding people who have issues to begin with. We're feeding them more destructive material and then you see the results. You see them carry out things that have a trail of online self-radicalization uh, as part of the story. Well, to take your meeting example, which I love, it's not just that the meetings are being prolonged. It's the algorithm is inviting crazier and crazier persuaders to the meeting. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's truly perverse. And yeah, you're there and you're fighting the meeting, right? But And you're frustrated and you try to argue with people and you yell at them. It's fine, right? As long as you stay in the room, if you're yelling at people, fine with the room, right? The room just wants you to stay there. And the room is engineered to get you to stay there. And if it's going to be cute, cuddly cats to get you to stay there, it's going to show you cute, cuddly cats. If it's something that you're really upset at, you know, if it's going to show you like racist people you can yell at, it's going to show you that. Uh, whatever it is that keeps you in the room. So it's a big bias. It's just a bipartisan bias. So everybody sort of goes, the people on the left say it's a right-wing bias. The people on the right go, it's a left-wing bias. And it is definitely a bias, but I think it's a nonpartisan pushing you to the edge of whatever to keep you in the room kind of bias. It's every conceivable bias. It's the magnification of your own tendencies by this description. Yeah, yeah, right. So what's your view of WikiLeaks? I think in general, whistleblowing is a time-honored tradition of dissent, right? You go back to the Pentagon Papers, and very often there are people in power who try to hide things from us, and they do it in an illegitimate way. And I think that 
in such cases, whistleblowing is not only a time-honored tradition, should be supported and defended. What I've seen WikiLeaks do over the past few years is not been that. Uh, what they've been doing is being just sort of these unreflective publishers of whatever they're fed. And they're doing it without curating the material or judging or using any uh, discretion in the public interest part. I think a leak uh, is valuable and defensible to the degree that it is exposing wrongdoing, but doing it in a way that isn't also dragging along ordinary people's privacy or to the degree possible that ordinary people should be protected. And it also shouldn't be a form of sabotage against an institution just because. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. Uh, I'll give you two examples. One, they're really unreflective in what they publish. Uh, once they published this email um, server, they said was Turkey's ruling party uh, emails. And I mean, I, I'm very close to the anti-censorship uh, group and people in Turkey because you know, I follow, I study this, I'm from there. So people are really excited in a way. They're like, what is this? Like they got really ruling party emails. Well, it turned out somebody had given WikiLeaks hundreds of thousands of email lists of just ordinary people discussing politics. It had zero to do with uh, the ruling party, except maybe they were pilfered from their servers. It's unclear. It may be that some people on that they were just subscribed to this list. I mean, think of it as meta filter or just a Reddit discussion, right? It's nothing particularly associated with um, the ruling party. So they just put it up there saying this was, you know, Turkey's ruling party's emails. And then Western journalists who didn't even speak English kind of bought it and started publishing stuff from here and discussing it as if that's what it were. And worse, they also uh, pointed to databases that was part of this hack. And they said, here's our full data. And to my horror, that full data that they pointed to, to their millions of followers, included the name and address of practically every female voter in Turkey. And I think that is what makes me think that they got this from the um, ruling party uh, servers is that they probably got some sort of voter database, which in Turkey aren't public to this degree. You don't have people's names and addresses. And I could find the names and addresses of a lot of dissident female journalists I know for him, this kind of, you know, exposure is pretty risky. And when I try to point this out to them, they're like, oh, you're just an Erdogan apologist. They couldn't even spell the name correctly. And uh, they, they just like, this was such a reflexive, uh, you could Google me for two seconds and kind of know this was a very stupid thing to say. And then I said, all right, don't listen to me. You know, here's a lots of uh, anti-censorship activists in Turkey who are horrified by what you've done. And instead of responding to that, they just blocked me on Twitter and sent me all their followers to call me all sorts of names. I'm kind of like, this isn't great judgment here. I mean, this is, it was so basic. Uh, any Turkish speaker could have told him in 10 minutes, this isn't what you got. This is what it is. So that was sort of my first kind of tangle publicly because I thought this is horrible. When it came to the DNC hacks, right, the uh, Democratic National Committee and John Podesta's um, emails uh, that they uh, published, 
Now the problem there was that they just took all the stuff and they pretty clearly started dumping it on a day that there was bad news for Donald Trump. And then they just dumped it all indiscriminately. So what you got was a large amount of stuff that had nothing to do with any politics. It was um, it was just, you know, business. Uh, and some of it was personal stuff. There was one case of a, um, this woman apparently had tried to commit suicide. Uh, unfortunately, and you know, luckily she 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 was she was stopped, and this was this concern. And she was working at the Clinton Foundation, and the workers, the people there, were discussing, you know, best intervention and sort of this concern. Not only did WikiLeaks publish such emails, they tweeted it with glee, saying, "Look, suicide attempt by staffer," uh, and mass media just jumped on this and discussed this on the air. I'm like, where is the whistleblowing in this? This is just basic, uh, this is flat out sabotage because if you basically make it impossible for people on one side of the political spectrum to have any privacy, you are sabotaging that side of the political spectrum. And this was very asymmetric, right? You didn't see anything from the Republican side. They only dumped Democratic side things and just posted them. Plus a lot of their sort of social media tweets were flat out misinformation. They made shady claims, crazy, they pushed crazy theories. Uh, and a lot of that went viral in uh, the social media ecosphere that is very sort of just devoted to misinformation. So they were feeding that. And this kind of interacted very badly with mass media's penchant often for um, gossip, because if you got a politi one political campaign's um, emails, you know, journalists are mentioned there. And all these journalists, these, you know, grown men and women were just trying to see if they were mentioned and they were obsessed with it. And there was so much coverage that was generated from it without reflection that, wait, this is, um, you know, this is just one side. In fact, after the election, when people finally started doing the research, we learned that the hacking wasn't just like this. It was uh, there was a part that didn't make it to WikiLeaks, but they apparently hacked um, the Democratic candidates up and down the ballot, like house races and primaries, and gave their documents. Like if you paid for a poll and cost you thousands of dollars, they gave it to your opponent. If you had a strategy document, they gave it to your opponent. Um, so to me, this is part of this is not only privacy destroying. Not only not whistleblowing, not only part of uh, a disinformation and misinformation campaign, this is flat out political sabotage. And people might be tempted to think, you know what, it's aimed at a powerful political party, the Democrats, and it's also aimed at, um, you know, Hillary Clinton, a powerful woman. I'm like, okay, fine, I understand that part. But these are the methods that are going to come at the centers more heavily. In fact, in Russia, which is basically the pioneer in this uh, part or this kind of political targeting, it has a name, Compromat, in which you target political dissidents or institutions, and then uh, you hack them because computer security is so lousy and it's kind of hard to avoid being hacked. And then you just spill it out. 
and you destroy any ability they have to privacy. And you know what? If I have 10 years of anyone's emails, there's something there I can twist into something else, right? I mean, that no nobody could withstand a deliberate misinformation campaign based on that much of your personal stuff. You have good days, you have bad days, you have stuff that, you know, you're just talking email. You don't think it's going to be published to millions of people. You might have said things a certain way. Um, so I thought what they're engaged in was ranging from total irresponsibility, an unwillingness to look at anything when challenged factually, like plain as day, any Turkish speaker could tell you, they just just blocked me on Twitter because, you know, apparently team no curation can't stand just me tweeting some points at them. Uh, and they don't curate anything. They just, and they act in a very concerted way to sabotage only certain political viewpoints. So that, to me, makes them illegitimate. It's not whistleblowing anymore when you're trying to sabotage only certain political viewpoints. And sometimes people tell me, you know, you're kind of saying this because, you know, this is, um, you know, Democrats, so, and people assume that I'm a Hillary Clinton supporter. And I'm like, I would say this no matter who was targeted because this method is may start from political parties that are powerful, like the Democrats or even the Republicans, I would have opposed it too. It is going to make it much harder for distant organizations because they're going to be more vulnerable. And in fact, this was used against like, you know, House candidates that were more progressive or, you know, had a better shot at beating the Republican. They were sabotaged down the ballot. And uh, if you're sort of a dissident organization around the world, there's going to be something in your emails that can be used against you. There's going to be something in your internal conversation that's not for public that's going to be used against you it's going to be some things that are just personal and private and none of anybody's business even if they may be curiosity provoking so i feel like this method was so pernicious that i really would have liked it to have been shunned as a method instead what we saw was a large number of social media misinformation based on it and mass media just going to town with it and saying, all right, you know, let's um, publishing from it as if it was you know, just drip, 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 which really consumed our attention before the election when there were a lot of things to cover. And there were a lot of things to cover on both sides of the political spectrum. For example, one Washington, I saw Washington Post front page. Uh, that was a WikiLeaks hacked email that was literally let me see this is october of 2016 i don't remember the exact date but they published in their front page something that said clinton worried about bernie sanders something and it turned out it was an email maybe two years old email maybe a year and a half that some huffington post blogger had sent to john podesta right i mean it's october of 2016 we're facing this election between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, and they're literally on their front page reporting what a Huffington Post blogger had sent to the campaign. So it's not even the campaign sending anything out because it just fits with stoking some divisions and it just gets eyeballs and it's just easy. It's right in front of you. In the meantime, uh, if you look at just sort of do a random, uh, not random, but just sort of do an eyeball check of how many uh, stories there were about the 
conflict of interest from Trump having such a business empire and becoming the president, which clearly you would have thought in 2016 of October, uh, it would have been a big topic to cover, right? Barely any stories. I searched them one by one and I couldn't find uh, really any. I, mean, I found some, but they were really minuscule compared to the WikiLeaks coverage and all of those things. And I don't mean to say they should have given Hillary Clinton a break. There are a lot of things that I think they should have covered about her that got drowned in this gossipy coverage that was pushed by WikiLeaks. And there are a lot of things that were should have been covered by about Trump that got drowned in this, again, gossipy WikiLeaks coverage, which made for more interesting stories. It's, you know, you were like rifling through somebody's closet and there might be something you're curious about, but that doesn't really mean it belongs in the front page of a newspaper. So I think it was a multi-pronged act of sabotage, and I don't think it was good for the world. And I do support transparency from the powerful as appropriate. But if you do this in this no-holds-barred, uh, I'm just going to go in with a baseball bat and expose everybody so that one party can't strategize, have any internal conversation, and their staffers have no privacy. I don't think that's good for the world. Changing topics slightly here, but tell me what happened and what's happening in this new category of cyber attack with those ransomware attacks on hospitals. So this is a really difficult uh, problem because what we have is the internet is a network that was started as a little network from trusted parties, right, to one another. People want, you know, you just within the academy or military. So it doesn't have any built-in security. You're supposed to, it's assume you know who the other person is interested. And then on top of that, we had a few companies, especially Microsoft, but others too, that build software very fast. And there are ways that we know how to build software so that it's less susceptible to hacking. You can sandbox the sort of program so that everybody's playing on their own sandbox. You can segment stuff. You can watch the memory. You can sort of mind your buffers. There's all these ways that computer scientists understand how to build more secure stuff. Well, none of it was really built in. <laughs> I mean, for decades now, we've had, I mean, to be honest, barely functioning crappy software. Um, I mean, it kind of works, but under the hood, it's ugly and insecure. Uh, the ugly isn't that much of a problem, but the insecure is a lot of problem. And it was during this time that uh, software starting started basically eating the world, right? It started getting embedded in all sorts of things. And um, so what happened with the last ransomware attack, it kind of likes this. There's a lot of things where um, people are using older operating systems like Windows 7 or Windows XP. And they're often embedded in a bunch of industrial systems or other systems. You know, I've heard examples from MRI machines in hospitals to somebody has a thing that weaves cloth and it's just got an embedded XP machine. Now the thing works as embedded, but in reality, it's this faulty operating system and it's embedded and held there by duct tape. Plus, when you, 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 you know, Microsoft has gotten better recently with Windows 10, but the problem there is the updates, 
they bring, bring you the security updates so that you're more secure. But very often, they're very privacy invasive. I mean, currently, Windows 10 advertises at you. Why? Right? What kind of... I'm just suspicious of anything that advertises at me. And it also is doing all sorts of behavioral targeting, I think. I'm not sure. I would like to know more. And it's kind of pushing various content. It's just sort of bothersome to me that it's doing all of this. I mean, it's to the degree that European Union is investigating the privacy violations uh, in Windows 10. So you're in this no-win situation. If you stay with your old software, it's crappy and insecure, and you can't really sort of trust security, and you get ransomware hacks. I think you should define ransomware in general. Many people haven't heard this term. Yes. Okay. So ransomware is basically a computer program that hacks into your computer's memory and hard disk and takes over it and encrypts it and then says, I'm not going to decrypt this and let you have it back unless you pay me, usually in Bitcoin, which is a hard to trace cash mechanism. So that's basically what happened to people in the last ransomware attack. And the reason it happened has something to do with the NSA because the NSA released a bunch of, oh, sorry, the NSA lost control of a bunch of tools that got leaked, and some of the ransomware comes from those tools. But to be honest, um, a lot of the older operating systems have so many weaknesses that even if the vulnerabilities that were released by NSA hadn't been released, they're just out there. So I, I, I have a lot to say about, you know, criticizing the NSA for the kind of surveillance and it sort of uses the weaknesses to supply on other countries or whatever else it's doing rather than, you know, using its expertise to try to defend people from being hacked, which is part of its charter. But in this particular case, it was really, I mean, it's just really true that our older software is insecure. And the newer software may be more secure, but it comes with privacy invasion. So a lot of people are reluctant to upgrade. And also, often the upgrades break the embedding of your uh, software with your MRI machine. So the problem here is that a lot of software people expect, like in 10 years, it's ancient, move on, get some new computers, right? Well, if it's in an MRI machine, I can't throw out my MRI machine in 10 years. So there's a mismatch between the age at which we think software is ancient and should be discarded and the industrial and other systems that we're increasingly embedding software in. And I have to say, we're just beginning, right? Because we're just sort of living through right now, the kind of light, latest ransomware attack we saw that hit a lot of hospitals is from, you know, bad software 10, 15 years ago. So we're just sort of starting to see the first wave. It's going to get worse and worse because software has been embedded more and more places. And some of them, like the Internet of Things, which is these, you know, baby monitors and the fridge and the toaster that's connected to the Internet, they are so terribly insecure at the moment. This is going to sound crazy. They're so terribly insecure that millions of them have been hijacked uh, into a botnet uh, so there's like millions of baby monitors chained together and they are used by the operators of this botnet to censor websites they do not like by directing all the millions of baby monitors to constantly ping a website till it goes down. And this botnet is so big 
that world's largest companies, cloud operators that specialize in deflecting such attacks had difficulty containing it. And these sort of insecure devices, the baby monitors and fridges of the world are so, they're not just insecure, they're unpatchable because they're unfixable because the new, like unlike at least your computer, at least there's a path. Maybe you could get a new operating system. A lot of these have no mechanism for updating. So we have this crazy situation where we're polluting the world with devices that are connected to the internet, but are super easy to be hijacked with no way to fix them. And we're just walking into this. And I, I'm just watching this with, I mean, it's almost amusing if it weren't like this horror movie. And I'm not sure where this is going either. I wasn't even aware that refrigerators and baby monitors were connected to the internet. I'm not aware of having one myself. If you have a device that's connected to the internet, is it always obvious that it is? Sometimes not. <laughs> some, I mean, some of these things, people don't understand that it has an IP address. I mean, if you can operate it from your phone, it almost certainly is. Like if it comes with an app, if it updates things, if there's anything that it connects and downloads from, yeah, it probably has an IP address. And a large majority of those have embedded devices or sort of boards in them that are unfixable. There's no way to update them or it's very laborious. There's no way to sort of automatically push a patch to them. And they're still being sold. And the problem is the incentives here are totally misaligned because the people selling like these sort of crappy, uh, insecure devices, they pay no penalty because once it's out of their hands, it's like it's out of their hands. Sometimes it's just the components. You know, they're all mass produced in China by a few big uh, companies and they're all got the same insecurities and the sort of the manufacturers are buying them. So they, there's no incentive. There's no accountability at any level when um, millions of them chain together and take down a website. Uh, it's, it's a form of censorship and there's zero accountability. And, you know, it's bad enough taking down, say, speech. What happens if they attack some critical infrastructure? What are we going to do with it? I, I, I don't even know what we're going to do with it, but I don't think it's that unlikely that such things will happen. But just to be clear on this one consumer point, unless you're sticking an Ethernet cable into the back of it or giving it your Wi-Fi password, if, if, it's not, if you're not doing one of those two things with this new device you got for Christmas or installed in your kitchen, is there any third way it could be connected to the internet? I mean, they're not, they're not releasing things that get on the cell network or anything like that that get assigned IP addresses. You have, I mean, you have to, you really have to check if it has a IP, if it's communicating with the outside world, uh, it's plausible. And, you know, baby monitors are so easy to hack that there was a website that got taken down, but it's not because it wasn't plausible. They could just randomly hack into random baby monitors. It was horrifying. You could just sort of cycle through and see somebody else's baby uh, sleeping or crying. Um, just, there's no oversight on this. I mean, there's no authority in the world that says, wait, I mean, at a minimum, they should be able to be fixed somehow when they have a weakness. There's no mechanism most of the time to fix them. So I guess the hope is that they're all going to disintegrate before there's a major crisis and maybe there'll be some next batch that is 
done with more security in mind? I, I don't see that. I mean, the, the way our software world is building is that we're using these complicated technologies. Even though we know better, every incentive from the manufacturers to Microsoft's of the world, every incentive they have is been has been until now to sort of take a shortcut on the security side of things, just push things out as soon as possible. And that's paid out really well for Microsoft because they, they push things out earlier than others. They became dominant. They have $100 billion in cash just hoarding, uh, sitting there idle, right? So they, they're a very powerful company. The strategy worked really well, except there's now this technical debt, right? There's now this um, infrastructure debt and it needs to be fixed somehow with Microsoft. The ideal would be that everybody kind of got up to better operating more recent stuff. Um, but unfortunately, the recent stuff comes with privacy stuff. So you have to pick your nightmare, security or privacy. Now, on the plus side, let me not be totally pessimistic. And I you know personally, I'm an actual optimist. This is hard for people to believe given my topics, but my personality is uh, not, um, sir, I'm not hopeless most of the time, even though some of the things I describe sound like that. Apple uh, has made it a business model to put privacy first and to lock itself out of people's phones, right? Now, I'm not happy that Apple phones are so expensive and they're quite um, profitable. Uh, so I would be really happier if they made a little less profit so every activist and journalist in the world could get one of their phones. But so it's possible to have a business that does it well. Apple has um, privacy built in by hardware into an Apple iPhone. If you want to keep people out of your Apple iPhone, I mean, that's where you have the best chance. Uh, Chromebooks, if you sort of tweak the settings right and are careful about you know, using what you expose yourself to Google, and you could just go through Google setting and make it log as little as possible, you can have a configuration that is really secure and hard to hack. Uh, you just have the problem of how to make sure that you know you protect yourself against um, Google, um, something like that. So there are these business models and options and ways of doing it. We just have to um, figure out, is there a way to get to more of that from where we are here uh, and hopefully bringing out both our older software and um, devices that are internet connected that are uh, causing the kind of nightmare they're causing. On the topic of baby monitors and <laughs> their indiscretions, I know a couple who came home from the hospital with their new baby and set up their baby monitor and their first night they're in their bedroom and they, they, they're watching their baby on the monitor, sleeping peacefully in the crib. And then they see this strange set of hands and head come, <laughs> come into the frame and lift their baby up and take it away. And they, oh, they get the my. shock of their life, and they run into the room, and the baby is sleeping peacefully. And so they they were just on the wrong frequency. They were just got their neighbor's monitor. These things are so insecure. Uh, and again, nobody pays a price for marketing an insecure device. And that's kind of what I think should end, is that we should hold uh, these companies that are selling us stuff. I, 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 see, I don't see insecurity as wearing out. If the software is old and it doesn't have some fancy uh, bells and whistles that newer software have, sure, I understand that, you know, the company has a right to ask for money for that. But if it's got a security defect, that's a defect and companies should be 
held responsible for defects in their software. Uh, and make, because right now software is sold on an as-is basis. It's just like you don't have any accountability on anything that goes wrong with it. That might have been great for innovation. And I can really see the positives of having that as the model for um, how we build software. But I think given how prevalent and important software has become, it's time to tweak things a little bit. Uh, innovation is great, but if software is going to rule so much around us, it really has to be done more responsibly from here going out. Well, Zainab, I just have a final area to talk to you about. I just, and it follows directly from this issue of cybersecurity. Um, is there anything that you do personally in this area that you think our listeners should do? Absolutely. Do you use Wi-Fi at Starbucks, for instance? Yes, yes. So um, here's the thing. The first advice that nobody hears is update your software. Um, I, I understand like sometimes it comes with a new user interface. It comes with tweaks you don't like. But given the state of things, updating software is like the number one advice you would hear from a security professional. Uh, just if your phone, your computer wants to get updated, most of the time that's about security. Uh, the second thing I really recommend to people is securing their primary email. So whichever email account it is that you get all your account recovery uh, from, that's that's crucial to you because if they can get into that, they can get into everything else, right? So the way to, um, if, if your um, primary email is Gmail, uh, there's a thing called a security key, which you can find, say, on Amazon for $17.99. It's this blue key, uh, you know, $17.99, not a lot of expense, expenses that allows you to um, add the second layer of protection so that nobody can log into your account unless the physical key is inserted into the computer. And I will send you a link that shows screenshot by screenshot, by screenshot how to install this thing. It's actually pretty easy to use once you install it. Um, so if you secure your primary email, that makes it much less likely that you'll be personally and viciously hacked because they can't really, if they can't get into that, they can't get into a lot of other things. And the third thing is don't reuse passwords. Uh, if you need to write them down, right? The odds that somebody's going to break into your desk at your office are pretty low, right? Or keep it in your wallet, right? Writing it down is the least worst way to keep passwords safe. If you can't keep a password manager, if you don't want to use one, uh, do that. Because password reuse, what happens is if you use the same password in lots of sites, when one of those sites gets hacked, they now have your email and your password in that site. And there are these automated programs that will try it out on all the other sites and they will eventually get you, right? So that's kind of uh, the password reuse is a huge problem with how people get hacked. Uh, if you're doing any sense to work in the world, if you're a journalist, if you're an activist, if you're a dissident to anyone, and I don't like having to say this, but it's true, you have to use an Apple phone. Um, Androids are just not updated frequently enough. It's a patchwork. It's it's really sad because Androids came from the idea that you could be open and it's a more open system. But it turns out, you know, Hobbes may not have been right about everything in the world, 
and I don't think it was that right about humanity. Uh, but the internet right now is a war of all against all when it comes to security. And it turns out when it's a war of all against all like that, your best defense is hiding behind somebody who's going to protect you maybe at the expense of closing down the platform. And that's what Apple has done. It keeps a very tight rein and it really prioritizes keeping your software secure and your phone secure. So if you're doing any kind of sense to work, uh, I recommend people use only Apple phones. And if I ever, and if Google steps up, um, I, I will be happy to recommend them. But if you're going to use an Android phone, the only ones remotely acceptable are the ones produced by Google, like Nexus or Pixel, because at least they get their security updates. So they're the least worst Android phones. And um, if you're sort of also for your computer, you're doing sensitive work as a journalist, uh, I recommend people get a Chromebook and learn how to tweak the settings to minimize its exposure to uh, Google, because Chromebooks are great. They're cheap and uh, they can, they're just very hard to hack. Uh, you just have, you know, I just have to be careful about what Google can collect from that. And we can go through the settings like that. And uh, finally, the thing that really isn't a big deal uh, is antivirus. Everybody gets told, you know, use antivirus. You know, not only is it not really necessary because of where things have gone, if you're on Windows, you should probably just use Windows Defender and nothing else. It's not clear that using an antivirus is safe. It's pretty clear not updating your software is not safe. So there's a way in which that there's a snake oil industry telling people, you know, buy this antivirus, do this, do that. And nobody's telling people don't reuse passwords and, you know, update your software. But that's what you need to do um, to sort of, besides the common sense part, and get a security key, $17.99. And Gmail is probably the most secure email we have. And once again, brings the same problem. It exposes you to privacy issues. Uh, finally, yes, I have one last thing to say. If you have sensitive conversations and you don't want to use Gmail, which you probably shouldn't because Google can read them, uh, a great alternative is using Signal or WhatsApp on your phone. These are chat apps. I use mine with a keyboard. And basically, they're what's called end-to-end -end encrypted. In the case of WhatsApp, it's owned by Facebook, and Facebook collects the metadata so it can see who you're talking to, but it can't see what you're saying. And Signal uh, is great because it works, it's easy to use, and not only can the company, even the company can't read uh, what you're saying, they don't even log who you've spoken to. And we know this because they've been subpoenaed and they have nothing to produce. So I think use your phone for chatting and use an encrypted end-to-end -end encrypted chat and just don't use email for anything sensitive. Uh, chat on your phone instead. Even work, do your work on your phone, preferably an iPhone, preferably on an encrypted uh, chat program and uh, update your software and use the security key for Gmail and you'll probably be way ahead of most of people. What about free Wi-Fi or Wi-Fi in a hotel? That's not a big problem. Uh, you just have to sort of know that. Um, really? Because I've been warned off that in very strident tones by people who fancy themselves security experts. It is could be a consideration. They, I mean, the biggest consideration is they can probably see what you're doing. But if you've got an up-to-date operating system, um, because they probably, 
aren't able to do much uh, with you. You know, I, I, it doesn't really scare me as much um, to use Wi-Fi as long as my system is up to date and, you know, my email is protected with a security key. Because even if, you know, let's say there's a really way that they can't really get your password because it's HTTPS, um, they see what you're looking at and maybe that's a consideration. Some people recommend using VPNs, but that's kind of, it's just sort of sad. There's nobody looking out for us. Even in the VPN world, there's a lot of snake oil there. There's a lot of VPNs that are just selling your data. So it's kind of like the cure is worse than the disease kind of situation. I have a few that I trust, but it's hard for an ordinary person to know how to be safe. So the best recommendation is be on a device that keeps you safe. And anything sensitive should be on signal on your iPhone, and that will go a long way. All right. Well, our next conversation, Zainab, will take place on Signal. <laughs> It'll just be for us. Well, if, yeah, it's, if you want to keep something private, that's probably what you do. I'm not sure about your podcasts, but good talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, just tell people your Twitter handle because you are you are very active. It's at Zainab. Uh <laughs> kind of straightforward, right? But it's not if you don't know how to spell my name. That's Z-E-Y-N as in Nancy E-P as in Pam Zainab. Well, thanks again, Zainab. I will talk to you down the line. All right. Bye-bye. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly, and you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.